What you're going to find in this chapter, we're going to cover all of it, it's 13 verses, is that there's three sections to chapter 5. You'll see this on the screen. The first in verses 1 and 2 are a correction. That's where Paul starts. The second in verses 3 through 8 are a discipline. And the third section of this chapter is a command that Paul gives in verses 9 through 13. The issue in this chapter is that there is sexual sin in the Corinthian church. And that's what Paul is addressing uh, here in this text. So, what does that mean for us? It means this this morning. If we study our Bibles well, then we also are going to receive, number one, a correction. Potentially, we'll receive a discipline. And thirdly, we're certainly going to receive a biblical command to follow out as Grace Athens in 2021. Okay? So I want you to listen closely for it. Right? What is that correction of thinking? What is that disciplinary response I might need to take? And what is that biblical command that we need to follow as a church? Let's pick up in the first section, a correction. Verse 1. Paul writes, by the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Verse 2. And you are arrogant, Paul says. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So quite a situation. First thing you're going to see is that there's two major issues here. Number one, there is sexual immorality in the church. You see that in verse 1. Actually an issue of incest. Second thing you're going to see in verse 2 is that the church actively tolerates this sin. What does he say in verse 2? Rather you mourn over it, not tolerate it. So those are the two major issues Paul's going to get into. Let's go deeper into the text, just verses 1 and 2. Immorality, you see in verse 1, is the Greek word porneia, porneia, from which we get the term pornography today. And it refers to any illicit sexual activity. That's what Paul's addressing. The first thing that Paul wants them and us to feel, to really feel this morning, is the severity of this sinful sexual behavior, that it's not okay. Incest was historically strictly forbidden under Roman and Jewish law. You find this in the Old Testament in Leviticus. It reads in chapter 20, If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So pretty black and white on the issue. Paul says, right there in verse 1 as well, that this is a kind of sexual immorality, look at verse 1, that is not tolerated even among pagans. Even the outside unbelieving world would have looked in on this church and said, You guys are really screwed up. Like, what is this? To be clear, it was uh, the gentleman's stepmother that he was having this inappropriate sexual relationship with. The second thing, though, that the apostle and the pastor of this church, Paul in Corinth, wants wants to address is the church's lack of response to it. They're, they're guilty of a different sin here, and it's the sin of toleration. They tolerated it. 
They condoned it. They didn't confront it when it was happening. Look at verse 2. It reads, and, are, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This implies that he wasn't removed. When this continued to happen, he was tolerated. Pastor John MacArthur says this, and I find it very helpful. It should be on the screen. They should have mourned instead. A church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster, he says. When we cease to be shocked by sin, we lose a strong defense against it. That was the pattern followed by the church in Corinth. She arrogantly followed her own feelings and rationalizations rather than God's word and found herself ignoring and perhaps even justifying flagrant sin in her midst. So I'll ask it again. I think it's important for us today. What was this church's sin? They weren't committing incest, the 99% of them, but what was their sin according to Paul? Well, this is how I would say it. And listen closely. They tinkered with their theology to tolerate sin. That was the issue. They changed and softened the Bible's theological teaching to tolerate and justify and condone this sexual sinful act in their community. And this is a temptation for our church today in this overly permissive 21st century. We all must face that. I see this kind of toleration and changing of God's word and God's principles. Um, I see it from all kinds of different Christians. And this is kind of the, the thinking and the justification and the accusation I hear when they find a church that's holding to God's word. It's things like this. Oh, that church is so judgmental over there. They're so legalistic. If only they were more spiritually enlightened and caught up to the times to know that God is okay with that sexual behavior. They're so locked in their fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible, aren't they? If they could just break out of their traditionalism and see what the Bible really means by that, at the end of the day, they're just an out-of-touch and unloving church over there. I hear that. I hear that in many places and our beloved churches in, in this nation. You know what Paul calls that kind of response to sin, though? Right there in verse 1. He calls it arrogance. Are you not arrogant? Verse 2 is what it says. Arrogance. It's ultimately this. Thinking that you know more than God does about sex. That's why he calls it Arrogance. You think you know more than God does, the very creator of life and of sexuality, um, about sex. This Corinthian congregation, congregation is arrogantly doing just that by tolerating and justifying this sin in their midst. And, and I want to call us back to something we looked at this summer. We went through the letters to the churches in Revelation. And don't we remember there was a certain church that Jesus addressed that had this same toleration of sin in their church. I want to take you back there. It's in Revelation chapter 2. Pretty shocking stuff from Jesus. Should be there on the screen. Similar situation, different church though. And this is the words of Jesus. This is his response. 
goes like this. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he praises them. But then he says this. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent, Jesus says, of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. What does Jesus have against this church community? Even the majority of them who were not participating in that sexual sin, it says right there that they tolerate it. They tolerate it. I would ask this, and I think every one of us need to ask this question. Do you seriously think that you are being more loving than Jesus Christ himself? when you tolerate such sin in your life or in the lives of those that you love? Are you more loving than Jesus? Do you think that you honestly know better than Jesus himself when it comes to these life situations? I think we would all say in this room humbly, no, we don't know better. And no, I'm not more loving. You see, the Bible's definition of healthy love goes something like this. And I think all of us need to store this away. Healthy love always confronts the sin that is compromising the health of a loved one. I'm going to read that again. Healthy love, biblical love, always confronts the sin that is compromising the health, the well-being of a loved one. Paul seeks in this first section to correct our thinking on these things. And in this next section, he's going to offer a disciplinary response to what was happening there in the church. Okay? So that's section number one. You still with me? If you're with me, just just do one of these right here. Okay. You seem to be with me. All right. Next section, a discipline. So he builds on that to say this, verses 3 through 8. Let's read them. Paul writes, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let me pause there because that's some pretty serious stuff. Paul is saying there's supposed to be a biblical excommunication process. We'll get more into that in a second. It means this person is to be dismissed from the church membership. It says to be delivered over to Satan. Now, there's some debate about what that means in biblical scholarship worlds. But if you think back to Job, the story of Job, God allowed Job and his family to be delivered over to Satan for a time so that Job might come out of that experience with all kinds of a deeper love, worship, appreciation, even more abundance than he had before, if you know the story. 
during that time, Job was in the hands of satanic um, affliction. And Paul is saying what needs to happen is this person needs to be removed from the realm of God and Christ and the church, placed on the outside of it, and be under the influence um, or the affliction or the, the, the testing of Satan so that in some ways they might hit rock bottom and realize what in the world am I doing and then come back, repent to the Lord and rejoin the church. Let's keep going. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good, Paul says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul is saying the leaders need to exercise biblical church discipline and excommunicate this man from the church. Excommunicate. I believe it comes from the Latin language. It means to expel from communion and communication with the church in hopes that they will repent and return. That's the biblical practice. It's important, though, to realize this, that this sexual sin from this one man was not a one-time offense. It had gone from a mistake to an ongoing lifestyle in his life. And therein lies the issue when Mistakes become a lifestyle. Clearly, he was not remorseful. He was not repentant over it. It might have originally started as a struggle that he battled against. But over time, it slipped into an accepted lifestyle of sin. It just became a part of his life. And now, this man is openly and consciously going against God's word and refusing to change. Jesus talks about this practice of church discipline. You find it in Matthew 18. He's talking to the church that when there's a sinful lifestyle that someone is not repentant, fighting against, remorseful over, this is what you're to do. It goes like this. Is it up here? Matthew 18, if we can go to that. Words of Jesus. And if your brother or sister sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Let him be dismissed out of the believing community. So the only thing left to do in Corinth was to heed the words of Jesus and remove this man from the fellowship hoping that, as it says in verse 5, his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, let's talk about this. You might be tempted, as I think even I am, as I read this this week, to think that this action is harsh. But that is the case because we fail to see two things. The reason you might see this action as harsh is because, number one, you don't take sin as seriously as the Bible does. And or, number two, we don't take the health of our church as seriously as the Bible, as Jesus, as the apostles do. 
So we need to discuss that. Let me start here. Does the Bible say Christians will no longer sin? It's an important question. What are you getting at, Pastor John? Are you saying we're not to have any sin at all in our life, even after coming to Christ? Well, no, that's a heresy. First John reads this. If we say we have no sin, he's writing to Christians, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is one thing for us Christians to struggle against sin. That's normal. It's good. Yet, while never tolerating an unbiblical theology that says this sin is okay with God, that is when we've crossed a boundary. That is when we've transgressed. God expects us to struggle with sin for sure. Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. While at the same time it says, but never ever be okay with it. And say, God's fine with this particular sin pattern in my life. He's not. The biblical witness is unanimous on what our response to remaining indwelling sin in the believer's life should be. What does the Bible say you, Christian, should do with your remaining sin? It says this, kill it. Kill it. That's the language. It's this militaristic-like, aggressive, forthright, deliberate action. Kill it. The theological term is to... Mortification, the mortification of sin, the killing of sin. That's what it says we're to do. Not to tolerate it and cozy up with it and change our theology, but to target it in our lives. Whether it's lust or greed or arrogance, target it and kill it. I want to show you a sampling of this kind of thinking in the Bible. It will be on the screen. Romans 8. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh. Remember, the flesh is where this sinful impulse arises. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death or you kill the deeds of the body, the promise is you will live. Corinthians 3, just look for it. Look for this killing language. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Jesus himself in Mark 8, look for it. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Know what happened on the cross and follow me. Lastly, from Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The logic of scripture is as follows. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's the logic of Scripture. 
from John Owen, a Puritan theologian in the 17th century. So well said. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Don't tolerate it. Make war on it. It's so easy for us to over time tolerate sin in our lives and even easier to not confront it gently and lovingly in others. I want to apply this to our lives, to this church. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend, stop. End it. Confess your sin to God. Repent. And live in Christ's righteousness. If you're living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend before the covenant of marriage, change that. Just change it. His grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. He'll help you. He'll orchestrate it. Change it. There's no condemnation. doesn't need to be a wallowing in guilt. Just realize it's against his word and change. We have to do that every day. You're not in a covenant where the marriage bed is allowed. Don't live together. The ultimate issue is not making sexual mistakes. That happens. Rather, it is tolerating them over time and making them into a lifestyle. I made sexual mistakes in my past. Most of us have. But by God's grace, I refused to tolerate them into a lifestyle. I knew they were wrong. And never contorted my theology to say anything different. God's word will keep you from that. Keep this thing close. Otherwise, you'll tolerate a lot of things that are unhealthy for you in your life. Mistakes will happen. They happened in my life. Lifestyle cannot. Confession will happen. Toleration should not. It's for our good. It's out of love Christ holds us to these healthy standards. I want to say this, humbly, gently. If you're tolerating pornography in your life, stop. Struggle and fight against it. We're with you in the battle. You're not alone. What I want across this room is genuine friendships that can go there and talk about even those closest of struggles. Purchase protective software is what I would tell you. It'll keep you from its influence. Get an accountability partner that's preferably has some authority over you in the faith. The Bible says in Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh. Don't do it. Friends, let's get honest. This is difficult to have in your pocket. You can get in a lot of trouble with the access that we can have through these devices. I have had to take those measures because I know how powerful my flesh can be. The Bible calls all of us. No one is above these things. To go to war against them and to not tolerate them, but to kill them by his grace. Does this make sense? I got a thumbs up, so I'll keep going. 
I know these are delicate issues. I know these are deeply personal issues. That's why I want to talk about this slowly. That's why I want to apply this to our life and not just kind of leave it out here as these big ideas like excommunication and this, that, or the other. This is real stuff. It's, it's, it's the week. It's the day. It's the minute. It's the temptation we are all living in. Galatians 6 reads it this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Titus 2, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's a call for us to make war against all remaining sin. I don't think this gets preached enough in our pulpits. I don't. And I, I, I guess because me and my preacher friends are afraid to talk about it. That's why I love going through Bible books every verse, because I'm forced to talk about it. <laughs> I'm forced to get up here and talk about things that are really personal, like sexual realities, right? The Bible says we're going to talk about it all because I, I, I want to love and redeem all of you. And preacher, don't run off and just talk about what you want to talk about on Sunday. Get your head in the book and tell them what they really need to hear. Bring to light the things that we're all going through. I told a couple friends that I was preaching on this this weekend, and, and a couple of them were like, ooh, how you doing with that? And for whatever reason, I, I, just, I just think, because I know how real these things are, I was like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I love these people. They know I love them. They're my friends. We talk about these things, you know, over coffee, over a meal, or whatever, in those friendships. We're going we're gonna to build a culture where if the Bible talks about it, we're going to find a way to talk about it here. I think because we don't preach on it, we develop a cozy theology of sin that is killing the American church. We're just not going to do it here. We have to recognize sin for what it is, a deadly enemy. That's how the Bible talks about it. Let me give you an example. Let's say me and you are walking through the woods. And let's say we're walking through the woods, and all of a sudden, a poisonous snake falls from a branch, and lands on your neck. Already scared. It's the right response. Poisonous snake curled up on your neck. Happened in an instant. Right? What would I say if I saw that? Oh, is that? Get the snake off your neck. You know, I barely speak. Get it off. Right? Now, let's say your response from this deadly enemy was to say, Oh, how cute. Oh, look at this pretty snake, John. Look at these colors, right? And you're just to tolerate it on your neck, to justify it being there, and to cozy up with this deadly enemy. We'd say, you're crazy. That's how the Bible talks about sin, right? What we have to do is change our thinking to look at the world through the lens of the word and realize that when that temptation for lust or greed or gossip or self-worship, or covetousness, or materialism comes up, 
But I have to see it for what it is, a deadly, poisonous enemy. When I start to see it that way, then on Tuesday when I'm tired and that temptation comes up, I mean, say, get off, get off. I won't tolerate this in my life. The Bible says you kill it. It says by the Spirit you kill the deeds of the body. Romans 8 verses 11 through 12. By the Spirit. So the Spirit is used as kind of a weapon. You kill sin, you pierce it with this weapon called the Spirit. Well, what is the Spirit also called in Ephesians? Uh, It's called the sword of the Spirit. And what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. That's what it says. How did Jesus kill temptation when he was in the desert? He struck the devil's temptations with the Word of God. He quoted Scripture three times. Because the Word is the sword of the Spirit that kills sin and temptation in your life. That's a whole other sermon. I can't wait till when we get to Romans. When it rises up, I speak the Word of God to it. And I get it out of my life. If not, I'm a sitting duck. I just am. And I'm going to go with my feelings over what the Bible says is good and true in that moment. Oh, man. This happens every time. You see this, right? You see this happening? I look at the clock. I'm like, oh, there's all this stuff. There are quotes on the back of your handout. And they talk about what's the most direct way to kill sin in our lives. The answer is worship. Not what you think it would be. Not what I thought it would be. It's, the answer is worship. I, I, you know, I'm just going to go quick. All right? I'm going to talk fast. Stick with me. First thing you have to do is understand your enemy. Who is your enemy? Sin. What is sin? According to the word, it's idolatry. It's self-worship. You know what? I don't have time. Look at those quotes. I'm telling you. There are three quotes on there that really revolutionized my thinking and my approach to the mortification of sin. And the ultimate answer is the worship of God. And I just want you to look at what's quoted there. In fact, can um, Kelly or Zach, do you mind handing me the handout right there? Sorry to make you get up. Okay. If you didn't get one, thank you. If you didn't get one of these, on your way out, make sure you get one. And you're going to find... Two quotes there in that section under a discipline. Those two quotes threw me back in my chair, and I said, wow, how have I never heard this? So take a look at that this week, and we'll find some time later in the, uh, later in the year or next year to really get into it. i got to go to the next section. The last section is a command, a command, picking up in verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, if they're an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. But for you, purge the evil person from among you. So let me end by breaking this down. I believe we fail to take sin as seriously as the Bible does. And because of that, we fail to take the health of our church as seriously as the Bible does. In the end, we fail to love each other. There's a quote there by Pastor MacArthur. You can take a look at it later. But this is where I want to end. There's an element to the content of this chapter that Paul's teaching us that can be missing within our local churches today. It's this. It's the idea, now get this, that the entire church's health is dependent on the individual's health. It's the total opposite of like American self-expression and, and individualism. It's more like a family. That only if you are healthy, I am healthy. That's the idea. It's pretty radical. That only if you are healthy in your life, spiritually with God, then I'm healthy. That's the idea. There's this deep interconnectedness and interdependence in the church. We prefer individualism, but what the Bible says is the church is amazingly connected. In fact, it says things as extreme as this in 1 Corinthians 12, that according to the Bible, we are one single body. Look at me. Ain't much to look at, but I'm one single body, right? You're you and your body. I'm me and my body. What the Bible says is smash us together, all of us, and then the millions of people in the global church, we're one, get that, body. One living organism, all of us together. It's this mysterious, deep, profound reality in Christ. So in the same way, we'd be zealous to fix our own health We should be zealous for the health of each other. In the same way, you're zealous to fix the health of your child. You should be zealous to fix the health gently of your brothers and sisters. In fact, to do so is to actually profoundly care for yourself. That's what it's saying. Example. Stomach bug went through my family recently. Not fun. Who to start with? Judd. No, Jack. Start with Jack. Then it moved to Shay. We think Judd might have had it. We're not sure. It's nasty. Here's the reality in a family. My family would not feel well and healthy if one of our children were ill. It affects all of us. It is the same reality, if not stronger, in the local church. We are totally in this together. And this should make us zealous to protect the well-being and the purity and the goodness of our common life. That is the heart of what this passage is saying. And that is why, I've talked about it before, but that is why we're asking everyone who wants to be a member of this church, even if you joined in years previous, to go through this new process of joining the church in 2022. We'll give more information for that, but I can't wait to do it. To gather in, not just attenders, but members, not just friends, but family, to take seriously and joyfully the commands of Holy Scripture as a unified church membership. It's going to be glorious. 
It's going to strengthen us. It's going to do some amazing things for this church, but also for the community we're trying to reach. And guess what? If you find yourself in college, we are going to make a way for you to also join this local church and be a church family member here. I believe God is calling our community to go deeper, to go higher, and to go further in the new year. I do. Why are we doing Christmas offering? Because we just, I'm just getting real honest with you. Man, come on up, because if not, I'll keep going. Why are we doing Christmas offering? Because we're supposed to do it and collect money to help the budget at the end of the year? It's a really dumb reason. Don't follow a pastor who that's their reason. We're calling on us to give a sacrifice of giving so that in the new year we're positioned and resourced to go deeper, to go higher, and to go further together as a church. That's why. And so in this new year, I believe God's calling us to call in those that say, yes, I'm not just going to be a tender, but I'm going to be a member, and I want to really live out the biblical vision for what it means to be a part of Christ's local church. Amen? Okay. Don't worry. We'll get to the other stuff later. All right. Stand with me as you're able. going to sing to the Lord one more time. When you came in, you should have received communion elements. If you didn't, just slip up your hand and we'll try and get those to you. But go ahead and grab those communion elements. I'm going to invite our prayer team down. Got some of our awesome volunteers and some of our elder families down here to pray with you. Let's pray for this communion we take together. Lord Jesus, we magnify and exalt you in our midst. We gather again at your table. For all who follow you are welcome to gather and to partake of you. God, I ask right now, you lead us to examine our life. Is there sin in in our life? Of course there is. Help us to confess it to you right now, just in our own mind and heart. Help us to confess those things we're struggling with, we're fighting with by your spirit. Help us to get honest before you right now at your table. That's what the table's for. Communion. Conversation. We confess our sin to you, Jesus. Because of your cross, you bore all of our sins in your body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We partake, believing that you will continue to fight with us, that you will will and work for your good pleasure in our lives. We take this in faith and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Let's worship him together now.